Well, good evening, Summit Church. Great to be here with all of you. Like Brian said, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we really are glad that all of you are here, especially if you're a guest with us this evening. Thanks a lot for joining us tonight. Um, hope you enjoy your evening with us. Uh, we have now officially entered into the Christmas season, um, which means that the next four weeks are going to fly by. How many of you went shopping for uh, Black Friday? Anybody go? Brave the crowds. Did anybody go at midnight uh, like when some of the stores began opening? Anybody? A few people? Like They're kind of embarrassed to raise their hands like, okay, I was one of those people that did that. That's okay. I know who did it because I saw on Twitter all the pictures of people doing it. I know some of you went, but... Uh, we are officially in the Christmas season now, um, which, ready or not, it's going to be here. I think I heard yesterday in 27 days, uh, Christmas will arrive, which now we're kind of at the point in most of our lives where you're either like really excited for that or you're also dreading the fact that you haven't made all those purchases yet for uh, Christmas gifts and you're kind of scrambling already, trying to think of what you're going to buy. So we're already at that point. Um, but I think, you know, as I've been thinking about this week at Christmas time coming and getting ready for that, Probably for a lot of us, if we were to compare our childhood experiences with Christmas, we'd probably find that they were all pretty similar. And they are all characterized by one primary thing, and that is the agonizing wait for Christmas Day to arrive. Does anybody remember that, the agonizing wait? You know, I can remember when I was a child, if you're anything like me, you're like counting down the days for like a month for that day to come when Christmas would be here, and you just cannot wait for that day. For us, we always did those, uh, those paper chains, you know, like in our bedrooms, all the links. Did anybody else do that? Like we would rip off a link each night and just wait for that day to come, be counting down the days, and, uh, and just, you know, not really even able to sleep. I remember my room was in the basement of the house that I grew up in, and I would, I would be up, you know, at three in the morning, you know, just like wide awake, wide-eyed, just waiting for like morning to come. So I could go upstairs, open up presents, things like that, and I would be waiting to hear a footstep. If I could just hear one footstep upstairs, I knew that my dad was awake, and it was game time. I mean, it was like time to open presents. I would bolt up the stairs, and we were ready to go at it. And, and so, some of you may be able to resonate with that, but that was kind of, you know, my experience with, with Christmas waiting. And probably all of us, you know, growing up, you're always hoping for a certain gift, right? You kind of put the request in for Santa, and, and you just hope that you get the one that you asked for. You hope for the right model, or maybe the right color, or, or the right video game, or the right Nerf gun, and you're just hoping that he doesn't mess it up, because sometimes Santa gets a little confused with that, um, and you'll find yourself, like, the day after Christmas, waiting in line at Toys R Us to return it and get the right one. That's always really frustrating, but as kids, we always find ourselves hoping and waiting for that perfect gift, um, but I want to take a poll real quick. How many of you, as children, how many of you would sneak around your house in the weeks before Christmas searching for the gifts that you knew your parents were buying you? How many of you would do that? You'd go looking for those presents. Okay, there are a lot of you. Bunch of cheaters. Okay, so how many of you, next question, how many of you actually ever found those gifts? Wow, a lot of you. Okay, your parents were not very good at hiding gifts. Okay, how many of you who were looking for those presents, found those presents, actually played with those gifts? Anybody? Did anybody actually? Okay, we have a couple people that actually played with us. Okay, one more question. How many of you have, as adults have done that? Gone looking for presents that you know people? Okay, yeah. So all of us kind of, kind of resonate with that, um, searching for the perfect. I remember um, when I was 12 years old, my parents bought us a basketball goal. Now, this basketball goal came in a huge box. I mean, it was like giant. There was no way you could wrap it. So they just ended up throwing it in the basement, and they put a couple blankets over it. And they told us, they said, 
don't look under those blankets until Christmas. You have to wait until Christmas to look. Now, you can just imagine what four curious boys did when we saw a huge box that we knew was a Christmas gift for us and just had blankets covering it. What did we do? We looked. Of course we looked. You know, I, I know that like, almost all of us looked. I think I remember being the first one. The, the wait just became so agonizing. It was unbearable after like probably 24 hours that I ended up going over to the box. I lifted up the blanket. I saw it was a basketball goal. I know some of my other brothers did. I think Matt, though, some of you know my brother Matt, I think he was the only one actually that had committed to not looking under the blanket. He was like, I'm going to ride this out. I'm going to wait. I'm going like, to I want to see what it is on Christmas morning. But, you know, since I had already spoiled the surprise for myself, I felt it was my obligation as his big brother to inform him of what it really was. So I told him, like, you know, as soon as I found out, he got really mad. It didn't go well. But um, that was some of the Christmas memories I can kind of remember growing up. And, you know, as I thought about this, this dynamic of waiting, 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 the agonizing wait for Christmas morning, that was actually the same dynamic that set up the very first Christmas. You know, some of you may know this. You know, it may be new to some of you, but in ancient Israel, for literally hundreds of years, hundreds of years, generation after generation after generation, there was a remnant of people, a group of people who were waiting. They weren't waiting for Santa Claus. They weren't waiting for presents or a stocking. They were actually waiting for a promise to be delivered on. They were waiting for a promise to be kept. In fact, they were waiting for a promise made by God himself to their ancestors about a day that would come, a day that would come and a person would arrive, literally a Messiah would come to save the nation of Israel, to rescue, rescue the people from captivity, and to use this people to completely and radically transform the rest of the world. That was the promise that was made. And there was this remnant of people for hundreds of years that waited for this. And these people, day after day after day, would wake up and live their lives in such a way that they thought today could be the day. Today could be the day that the Messiah arrives. Now, you know, unlike us, the certainty for them of Christmas did not come every day. For us, you know, every year we know that Christmas is going to come, whether we're ready for it or not. But for them, generations of people would, would wake up, and year after year after year, they would wait and hope and expect and pray for this promise to be kept, for this Messiah to come, for them to be delivered. And generation after generation after generation of people, they would, they would wait and they would hope and they would pray, and they would expect, and then they would die. And nothing would happen. And so what would happen is that you would have generations of people, generations of Jews that would walk away from their faith. They would turn their back on their religion. They would abandon the promises of God, and they would be thinking, who in the world would devote themselves to a promise that was made thousands of years ago? Who in the world would devote their lives to a story that was told to our ancestors thousands of years ago? Who in the world would devote themselves to a book that was written thousands of years ago? And so while, while generation after generation of people left the faith, abandoned the promises of God, turned their backs on their religion, there always remained a remnant of people who continued to be faithful, to believe to wait and expect for that promise to be kept. Now tonight what we're going to do as we begin this Advent series, we're going to look at two people. Two people who believed that that promise was going to be kept. Two people who are part of that remnant. And as we look at the Christmas story and the events surrounding the Christmas story, what we begin to realize is that this is, 
This is really relevant for all of us. The Christmas story is so relevant for all of us because in many ways, it's our story. It's, it's my story and it's your story. The Christmas story is our story. And you know, if you're here tonight and you're kind of thinking, you know what, it's probably not my story because I'm not really sure I believe the whole Bible thing. I'm not really sure about the whole God thing. I'm a bit skeptical. You know, we'd say this story is especially for you. Really, this is for you. Luke wrote this story specifically for you. He had you in mind. In fact, a lot of times the book of Luke is referred to as Luke, the gospel for skeptics, or Luke, the good news for skeptics. So if that's you tonight, and you're kind of thinking, you know what, I don't really believe, I'm not really sure about this, I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure I'm on the same page as you guys, hey, that's great, we are so glad that you're here, we're just going to encourage you tonight, just kind of absorb some of this stuff in, we're going to pray that it's useful for you. But if you're also kind of on the other side, and you're saying, you know what, you know, I am a Christian, I really do want to follow Jesus, and obey Jesus, and, and, and worship God, we'd say the Christmas story is just as much for you as well. The Christmas story is just as much for you as well because all of us at some point in our Christian experience, all of us at some point in our Christian journey will face a period of time, will come to a certain point where God himself seems so quiet and God himself seems so distant and God seems so seemingly silent. And we ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Why, why are we doing this? Why do we believe this? The circumstances of our life maybe may be seeming so unfair and so inconsistent that we find ourselves asking, what are we doing? Why, why are we doing this? Why do we believe this? Why are we serving? Why are we obeying? Why don't we just go back to what we knew? Why don't we just go back to what we used to enjoy? Why don't we go back to him or to her or that girlfriend or that boyfriend? Why don't we go back to experimenting with those things? Why don't we go back because, because everything right now seems like God is not real. And everything seems like right now that life is inconsistent and everything, you know, if people are saying God is true and God is real and the scriptures are what they say they are, everything in my life right now is suggesting otherwise. And if that's where you find yourself, and if that's what you think, and if you're in one of those periods, the Christmas story is for you, because it's our story. So we're going to start tonight looking at verse 5 of chapter 1 here in Luke. Verse 5 is where the Christmas story begins. And it says here in verse 5, In the days of Herod, read along with me, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So you have Zechariah, he's a priest, and he's married to Elizabeth, who comes from a long line of priests. Basically, these two are preacher kids, okay? And they come from a long line of preacher kids who came from preacher kids who came from preacher kids. And in verse 6 it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So basically, these are what we would say good preacher kids, okay? They actually did the right thing. They were following God. They were worshiping God. They were walking blamelessly. And, and they did all of these things. All of these things they did because of a promise that had been made hundreds of years before to their ancestors. Hundreds of years before to their ancestors. And in a day and age where nothing, nothing seemed to indicate that these promises were actually going to come true, we have Zechariah and Elizabeth continuing to follow God. In a day and age where nothing, there was absolutely no indication that God was who he says he was. There had been no word from God. There had been no signs from God. God had been silent. There had been no prophets from God. We find this couple continue to follow God. Despite God's silence, they had even more reason 
to abandon their faith in God. Look here, look again in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 7, this is important. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now we learn two things here about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Two things. First thing we learn is that they are old, okay? They're really old. And we don't really know how old Zechariah and Elizabeth are, but when the Bible says they were advanced in years, that's the polite, saying, polite way of saying, you're really old, dude, and you got a wife. Okay, so we know that they're old. And the second thing we know is that they are never able to have children. Now, emotionally, this is devastating in the same way as it, as it would be today. But financially, this is really dangerous for a couple like this. Okay, because this is a day in a culture where um, you know, there's no types of savings, there's no types of social security, there's no types of uh, nursing homes or care centers or anything like that. When you grew old, you depended on your children to take care of you. If you had no children, you were in great danger. And that is the situation that Zechariah and Elizabeth find themselves in. And you can just imagine what it would be like for others to look upon Zechariah and Elizabeth. I mean, you can just imagine, especially in a culture that so prizes childbearing, a, a culture where there's just even a social stigma for those people who don't have kids, where it's assumed that you must be cursed by God if you do not have children for something you have done. It would be so easy for anyone to look on Zachariah and Elizabeth and say, hey, you know, guys, like, how's the whole faith thing going for you? You know, how's the whole religion thing really working out for you? Because the last time we checked, Zachariah, the last time we checked, you don't even have a family. And the last time we checked, Elizabeth, you can't even have a kid. You know, the, the, the whole faith thing doesn't really seem to be working out for you that well. The God that you think exists probably doesn't exist. The God that you think is alive is probably not alive. And the promises that you are waiting for to be kept, they're not going to be kept. When are you going to realize that, Zechariah? When are you going to wake up, Elizabeth? You know, when we think about Zechariah and Elizabeth's situation, you know, probably all of us in some way can resonate with that state of mind. Probably all of us in some way can resonate with those circumstances where, you know, it might not be barren. It might not be that you can't have children, although it might be. But there are probably a number of other things that you're looking at in your life, and you're just realizing, I right now do not feel the presence of God. You might be going through certain seasons where you're saying, I just don't understand why life seems so unfair and God seems so silent. Because if God is real and if he is caring and if he is interested, why are my circumstances as they are? And probably all of us can resonate in different areas. And, you know, maybe it's something just like as simple as relationships. And you're thinking, you know what? You know, for years I've been waiting and hoping and praying and asking from God and he seems silent. I haven't heard anything from him, and I'm still single, and I want a husband, or I want a wife. And I'm continuing to be invited to all these dumb weddings where I'm always the bridesmaid, never the bride, and I deserve more. You know, or maybe it's something within your workplace, and you're just, you're, you're waiting, and you're hoping, and you're asking, and you're praying to God, and you're just expecting for him to do something, and, and God seems so silent. And you're thinking, you know, when is something going to happen in my work? When am I going to get the promotion? When am I going to get my dream job? When am I even going to get hired? Because right now I'm still unemployed. And God seems uninterested and God seems silent and God seems not to care. And for some of us, there are things even deeper in our lives. Some of us have things right now that are so personal, that are so devastating and so daunting in our lives that they don't even compare to those types of illustrations. 
And you would be able to cry out at any moment and say, yes, my life seems so unfair and God seems so silent and I don't understand this. You know, all week I've been thinking about this and trying just to pray through, thinking about, you know, how do I resolve this for people? How do I comfort people if that's their situation, if that's kind of what they're thinking about, if that's what the, the position they're in right now? The more I prayed about it, the more I realized that that's something that, in many cases, for all of us, I can't just offer you, you know, one of those cheesy, cliche, bumper sticker types of Christian sayings that churches love to throw out. Now, I can't offer you one of those. The first thing I can only do is come beside you, though, and as a church, we can say, we have to acknowledge that the world we live in is so broken, and it is in desperate need of restoration. The world which we live in is, in, is so broken, and it is in desperate need of restora- restoration. But as we look at the example of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see three things. I want to offer you three things that we see here from them, from their lives. The first thing we see in their example is that they do not sin. You know, when we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, they don't sin. In that day and age, infertility was almost always assumed to be the woman's fault, and that would actually provide Zechariah with legal grounds to divorce Elizabeth and find a new wife. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't divorce Elizabeth. He stays with her. He loves his wife. He stays married to his wife. He grows old with his wife. He does not sin. He remains faithful. Secondly, they don't get bitter. Most people get really bitter at God when things don't go their way. Okay, God, you're not going to give me a baby. Okay, God, you're not going to give me this job. Okay, God, you're not going to give me a relationship. Then I'm going to hate you. I'm going to despise you. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to serve you until you change your mind. The interesting thing is, though, we don't see Zechariah or Elizabeth do any of these things. They continue to worship God. They continue to pray to God. They continue to serve God. They accept God's providence in their lives. They say, God, we, we trust you. We believe your Bible. We believe your promises. We believe that you are the one who opens and closes the womb. We would love to have a baby. We would love to be parents. But if you don't give us a baby, we're going to continue to love and serve you. That's what they do. That's what we see Zachariah and Elizabeth continue to do. And finally, they make a decision. They make a decision when everyone else is abandoning the faith, when everyone else is walking out on God, when everyone else is walking away from the promises of the ancestors that have been passed on from a legacy from generation to generation to generation, and they're faced with a dilemma, the same exact dilemma that we are faced day after day, the same decision that we must make. Do we stay or do we go? When, when God's presence seems so far away, when God seems so silent in our midst, do we stay or do we go? Do we believe or do we stop believing? Do we serve or do we do something else? Verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me here. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so we have Zechariah. He's a priest here. And this is kind of an interesting story, what's happening right now. Uh, basically, he's a common priest, which means he is one of thousands of priests. He's a very common man, uh, just, like a, a, just like a real uh, common priest, nothing special. But twice a year, there's a huge event that happens in the city of Jerusalem where all the priests get together. They all go, it's like a huge convention almost. They all travel to Jerusalem. They have a big festival. All kinds of neat events happen. And, uh, and while they're there, they have one big event. 
And that's where one person, one of the priests, gets to go into the temple, he burns some incense, he prays before God, and then he leaves. That's the big event. And it's like the highlight of a priest career. It's like the Super Bowl of any priest's life, like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Most people would never get the opportunity to do it. But they roll some dice, they, they pick a guy, and they say, all right, it's your turn, you go in. This is what happens. You know, for Zechariah, probably 40 or 50 years, he had traveled to Jerusalem. Year after year after year, the dice are rolled, the name is called, it's not Zechariah, he loses, until this time. Zechariah rolls up to, to Jerusalem, they have the big festival, they have the big conference, they roll the dice, they look at Zechariah, and they say, Zechariah, today is the day, you're the man, you're the one going in today. And you can just imagine Zechariah, I mean, he's stoked, like, he's so excited, he's like, man, all my life, I never thought I was going to get to do this, today is the day I get to do this, and so this is what happens, he goes in, and he's actually going to get to do this. Um, now, look at what happens here. He goes into the temple of the Lord and burns incense in verse 9. He walk, just imagine, he walks into this temple, the most sacred of places. He burns the incense. He closes his eyes, and he prays to God. He probably prayed for two things. God, please deliver our nation. Please send us the Messiah that you promised. Please deliver us from captivity. And secondly, Please give Elizabeth and me a baby. Please give us a baby. He prays, and then in verse 11, look in verse 11, and then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, he, and fear fell upon him. Okay, so there's this, all of a sudden, he's praying, he finishes his prayer, and he looks up, there's an angel in the room. Now, typically, you know, in the American environment in our day and age, when we typically think of angels, we like to think of, like, Pillsbury Doughboys with wings um, or, like, some cool, calm, collective guy like Morgan Freeman that just, like, walks up to us on the street. He's, like, our guardian angel or something cool like that. But I don't really know a whole lot about angels, but every time in the Bible when you meet an angel, you know what happens? The same exact thing. Anytime anybody meets an angel in, in the Bible, they always, like, fall straight to their knees. They're, like, terrified. They're screaming because they think they're about to be killed. That's what happens because angels in the Bible are like strong and powerful and really scary. Even when like God dials it down to a one, I mean, people are still like freaking out anytime. Even like a a good angel bringing really good news to a righteous man like Zachariah. I mean, he's a good man. Like imagine if it were you and like an angel all of a sudden was there. Like if it was me, I'd be like scared out of my mind. I'd start confessing things like crazy. Like I didn't mean to. I'm really sorry. I didn't know that you saw that. But you know, you got this angel here and he's just like, wait, just just shut up for a second. I'm going to try to give you good news. And look what he says in in verse 13 here. (laughs) He says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah. That's like the standard greeting of any like, biblical angel. That's the first thing they're always like, required to say. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. For your prayer has been heard. I would, I would love to hear that sometime, wouldn't you? I mean, not even your prayer has been answered, but your prayer has been heard. Maybe even just like a confirmation email from God sometimes. Like, okay, received the prayer. Just wanted to let you know it's been heard. Like, wow, thank you, God. My prayer has been heard. He says to him, your prayer has been heard. 
And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, for many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And the story continues. And he will, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's saying, Zechariah, your boy, in the same way the Holy Spirit filled Elijah, he's going to fill your boy. In the same way Elijah was a prophet, your boy is going to be a prophet. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now at this point, this has gone from like a big day to a huge day for Zechariah. This is a point where, you know, this was going to be the highlight of Zechariah's career, but then he met this angel. He experienced God, and this is going to radically transform his entire day. But at this point, we actually realize Zechariah is a man. He's just like every man because he makes a mistake that is common to all men. When he should have just celebrated and thanked the angel and strutted out of the temple like a proud daddy, he does something else. He should have shut up, but he talked. And that's, what, that's where he went wrong. Look what he says here in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? He gets really diplomatic too. He says, um, for I am an old man, and my wife, uh, my, and my wife is, you know, notice how he changes the wording here. I think, it, you know, if you think about Zechariah, he probably is thinking at that moment, you know, I'm not sure who's going to hear about this later. And these things have a funny way of being written down and ending up in books. So I'm going to be really careful about the words I choose here. He says, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So I, I hear what you're saying. I hear that you've heard my prayers, but I think you may be a little late. Gabriel, I think you might be a little late because we've been praying for this since we were 20. We've been praying for this since our 30s. Just for a good laugh, we prayed for this in our 40s and in our 50s. This was like an inside joke that we prayed for every once in a while. And you're telling me that we're going to be pregnant? I mean, that is like, that's ridiculous. How can this be? You know, I'm like 70 years old, Gabriel. If I have a child now, like he's going to be more comfortable calling us grandma and grandpa than mom and dad. He's going to be like visiting us in our retirement home. This makes no sense. How can this be? At this point, Gabriel, the, the angel is going to respond to him. He's going to be like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, how can this be? What do you mean, how is this going to happen? Look what he says in, in verse 19. And the angel answered him. I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. I am an angel from God. You've been praying for this for your entire life. You're in the temple of Jerusalem. An angel appears to you and tells you that you're going to be pregnant, and you start questioning us. You start doubting me. He says, I stand in the presence of God. You know where I just came from? Like a few minutes ago, I was standing next to God, and he told me, hey, go tell Zechariah, prayer is answered. And now you're questioning me? I was sent to you to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And at this point, Gabriel's going to get so fed up. And he's going to be like, all right, now it's time for you, Zachariah, just to shut up. And you're not going to talk anymore. And this is like what we call a divine time out. Look what happens here in verse 20. And behold, you will be silent 
and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled. Look at this. This is great right here. Which will be fulfilled when? In their time. In their time. Zechariah, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Do you mean that all along, from the very beginning, that you had this date planned for the birth of my boy? Yeah. Do you mean that even though for the last 400 years we haven't heard a single word from you, that you have been silent since the glory days of David and Solomon, and no one thinks that you're actually alive? You're telling me that you had this all planned on purpose? You mean that even though you seem so silent and so uninterested and you seem like you don't care at all, you're telling me that my prayers have been heard and the prayers of generations of people have been heard? Yeah. Zechariah, my words will be fulfilled in their time. You know, this is our story, isn't it? This is our our dilemma, isn't it? You know, when we see droves of people rejecting the promises of God, when we, when we see tons of people turning away from God, rejecting the promises of God, and we examine our life, we examine the, our circumstances right now, we see what's going on around us, and God may seem so quiet, and God may seem so distant, and God may seem so uncaring. And we have the same dilemma. Do we stay or do we go? Do we believe? Do we stop believing? Do we continue forward believing the promises of God and holding fast, waiting for it to be delivered? Or do we reject God? And do we walk away? You know, 2,000 years ago, there was a remnant of people that faced that same question. A remnant of people that, that, that daily dealed with that same dilemma. And when it came to God, when it came to understanding who he was, they too found themselves in the same position where they questioned their faith, they questioned their stories, they questioned everything that people had told them and said, you know what, I'm not sure why we should do this. I'm not sure if we should continue believing. I'm not sure this is worth it. And you had the same group of people who knew, just like we knew, what it felt like to be alone, who, who knew what it felt like to be alone and have questions and, and just to want to see answers and explanations for who God is and why things happen. And the same questions that this group, this remnant of people was asking 2,000 years ago are the same questions that we find ourselves asking today. You know, if, and if that's you tonight, if, if you find yourself in one of those periods of frustration or one of those seasons of doubt, you know, whether you are a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, whether you believe the promises of God or you don't, all of you at some point or another are going to wrestle with those questions, are going to wrestle with doubt, are going to wrestle with believing. There's two things I want to say to us tonight. Two things. The first thing, the Summit Church is a place, first of all, where it's okay to not be okay. Summit Church is a place, we say it all the time, it's a, it's a place where it's okay to not to be okay. It's okay to have questions, it's okay to struggle with doubt, it's okay to wonder, it's okay to be frustrated, 
And when you are, we will come around you and we will be quick to affirm you and we will be quick to comfort you and we will be quick to walk alongside you like a family because we care for you and we love you. And it's okay to not be okay. And the second thing is that I just want to encourage you that the Christmas season is the perfect time for some of you for the very first time in your life to begin wrestling with the great questions of God. To begin wrestling with the great questions of God. To begin examining who you believe God is, what the Bible says, the promises that were made and the promises that are kept. This is a fantastic time of the year to begin your journey of faith, to begin seriously wrestling with those questions. And we would love as a church family to help you in that journey. Tonight we're going to finish by reading through the last few verses, starting in verse 23. If you want to turn your Bibles to verse 23 there, it says, And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, verse 24, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, reproach among people. For five months you have Elizabeth hiding out in her home, doing nothing but worshiping God, probably rubbing her belly, thanking God for the baby that he had given her. You can just imagine, probably like one hand on the belly, one hand like raised to God saying, thank you so much God for this baby and thank you for the mute husband. For the next nine months, I get to win every argument. Thank you, Lord. That's what we see Elizabeth doing. She's sitting there thanking God for what he has provided, the promises that he has kept. You know the thing, though, the interesting thing about the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, you know, as inspiring as a story as it is, as remarkable a story as it is, this day and that story had been planned long ago. And it was only the pre-show of the main event. This was like the opening act for something so much greater. The, the miraculous birth of this boy, John, was just God warming up for something that was going, it was going to pale in comparison to the birth of another miraculous child, the birth of Jesus. And while the birth of John would take away the shame of a mother and give joy to a father, that birth of the second child, Jesus, would take away the shame and the guilt and the reproach of all mankind. And it would bring joy to all who receives him. And that is the journey that we're going to go on in the next four weeks as we discover the hope that is here.